the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, why is the topic of hypocrisy and the result it has on our message such an important one? And then we're joined by Jason Casper, correspondent with Christianity Today. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today. Hope you're having a great day. There's something called the Met Gala. You're familiar with the Met Gala? Of course I'm familiar with the Met Gala. (laughs) Give people just... Give people a thumbnail sketch, kind of Reader's Digest version of what the Met Gala is. Yeah, a Met Gala is really a night to celebrate fashion. And it is sort of for, not sort of, it is for fashion's elite and celebrities Mm -hmm. elite. It is put on by Vogue editor Anna Wintour, who's very famous. And only, only the very hottest celebrities and the very hottest designers are invited. They dress very avant-garde in their fashion. It's sort of a wild night for fashion. But the big thing about the Met Gala is the ticket is $35,000 and up, and it's invite only. So it's a it's a very sort of elite highbrow deal that the rest of the world, like us, will never be invited to. And the irony is that the dresses, the, uh, it's especially focused on the dresses the women wear. Right? Yes. Uh, well, the guys the, are just the, in tuxes. No, the guys wear cool tuxes, too. It's especially really? as fashion has changed and certain guys are more fashionable to change. But it is definitely about... Not just the dresses, but the entrances. Like women ride in on horses or they're carried <laughs> in on carpets. You know, it's a bit it's a big deal. It is. But I was gonna say the, the the irony is that the dresses I saw some of it on the news. Yeah. They're not anything anyone would actually. No, no, wear no. And that's public. the point. They're very avant garde <laughs> costumey. They're not real. It's not like you're gonna buy it at TJ Maxx. That's yeah. Oh, well, that's a total shot at TJ Maxx there. I love TJ Maxx. I mean, I only shop at TJ Maxx, but you're not nice. going to find TJ Maxx at the Met Gala. Absolutely not. That's right. And so you brought up an interesting point. The Met Gala, it's in New York City. The Met Gala is $35,000 a ticket. And Aubrey, there is a picture uh, flying around because one of the people who was invited and who was at the Met Gala uh, was uh, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She's known by many people as AOC. She is a representative from New York City. She's wearing a white dress uh, and uh, basically in kind of red, almost spray paint type of font, uh, her dress says tax the rich. Mm. And let me uh, let me read to you a, a tweet that I saw. Uh, Vanessa Friedman, she wrote, she's a, a uh, reporter, she wrote, uh, AOC's attending the $35,000 a ticket Met Gala in a gown blaring tax the rich is a complicated proposition. <laughs> Michael Bird, he went on to tweet this. He says, how does one vaunt slogans about taxing the rich while wearing a dress that costs more than what most people earn in a year and relish sitting in the company of the obscenely rich and famous. This is the recreational Marxism of the bohemian bourgeois that really ticks me off. (laughs) uh, He is an academic. He is a a Christian. He's an academic dean as well. So, Aubrey, uh, I want to talk less about what she wore, but more about this concept of optics and hypocrisy. Right. So people are looking at this going, you've got to understand what this looks like, right? You have to understand literally her right. dress. I'm not seeing exactly what it costs, but he is right when he says it costs more than what a lot of people make in a year. Yeah. AOC has kind of set herself up as the congresswoman uh, for, for the people, for the poor, the yeah. working class. Yeah. Am I missing something? Doesn't this feel really kind of um, tone deaf at best and just hypocritical at worst? So I wholeheartedly agree with you. Here's the only way I think it's justifiable. Okay. One, could she have been invited and didn't buy her own ticket? 
Two, did someone uh, like a fashion designer who's up and coming, who doesn't have a name yet that maybe is struggling, make that dress and she's wearing it as a way to promote and endorse their work. So now they're getting more attention. Three, if you're going to tell people to tax the rich, I, you know, you're going to say it to the rich people and they're, that's the richest people in the world. That's the 1% right there. So it's the right audience in a sense. But of course, the optics of it are horrible, hypocritical. Terrible. Terrible. I mean, just absolutely terrible. Like, because the reality is, let's say she did pay the 35 grand and I'm guessing she did not pay for her dress. So that probably is off the table. But, but I mean, if you're really a, if you're really for the poor, you take that money and you have people donate or you donate or you go, you know what I mean? Like there's so many other ways to get across your message than that. You just don't go to the Met Gala with there a you go. dress yeah. that says tax to rich. Yeah. And politicians are great at this, right? Al Gore, who famously uh, is like the father of the climate change push, right? What, yeah. what was he had that movie yes. and all this stuff? Uh, famously had one of the largest carbon footprints in his home state of Tennessee. Oh, <laughs> like, wow, wow. And people went, how is that possible? If you think it's just a Democrat thing, right now, Congress, uh, Congressman Ted Cruz, Senator Ted Cruz, oh, right, right. is one this. of the leading voices against making kids wear masks in school, sends his kid to a really elite private school where they, where wear, they masks. wear masks. Yeah, yeah. And, and sometimes I think people, like people of power, don't realize or don't care about this optics. But Aubrey, let's spin this towards what we are concerned about, because it's one thing to be like, Man, politicians are hypocritical. Yeah. yeah, that's like saying water is wet sometimes, right? right? right like, right. sure, we get that. Yeah, but you and I, we know this. One of the largest, uh, one of the biggest critiques of the church and Christians as a whole is hypocrisy. Yeah, right. Oftentimes, people who are uh, non-Christian or who aren't interested in the faith will talk about the hypocrisy of the church, and they'll they'll point to pastors who don't live out this message of of generosity and and contentment that they preach or or many other things and i guess aubrey i would just ask you that as a pastor and somebody who cares about the church yeah um do you think it's fair do you think it's fair when people look at the church and at christians and go yeah the hypocrisy is my biggest thing as to why i don't want to listen to you i mean i think here's what i struggle with with that critique of the church is yes we're mm-hmm. hypocritical. That's why we need Jesus. But also, so are you, world. Like, this is the thing about the Met Gala. Like, so are you, rich people at the Met Gala. Like, I, I think that's where I, when they can't see the plank in their own eye, because I am willing to say, I'm a total hypocrite. I wish I wasn't. I try to live a life of integrity, but I'm a sinner. And so without Jesus in my life, like, I am hypocritical, period. I don't want to be. I don't mean to be. It happens. And so I think I just sometimes I feel like the world, especially sort of the glitterati, you know, celebrity world, think that they're so much better than the church. And I and this is sort of just a shining moment where you where you want to be like, all right, if you're going to call us hypocrites, you have to own your own hypocrisy. Mm. So, yeah, I actually do think it's a fair critique when people point out the hypocrisy of the church. But I think that doesn't go far enough because then we need to say yes. And that's why we need Jesus. Yes, exactly. Pope Francis back in August, he called hypocrisy in the church as, quote, particularly detestable. Mm. And I think you're get you're striking the right tone. I think we need to. Uh, be really burdened by the hypocrisy of Christians in the church and use it as an opportunity to go, yeah, but that's why it's not about us. Right. That's right, why I want to right. talk about Jesus. And this is why Jesus talks about the plank in your own eye. When you look at AOC or you look at Al Gore or Ted Cruz and go, hypocrites, right? So what's the call? I go, okay, where's the hypocrisy in my own life? That's Where it. Do I need that's to exactly it. Yeah. Like this is not a, a, a blank check to go, okay, yeah, I'm going to be a hypocrite. So I'm just going to li- revel in my hypocrisy. No, absolutely. use it as an opportunity to go. Yes, this is an important thing. Uh, but then also to point people to Jesus. I love the pastors who are like, yeah, I'm the worst of sinners, but yes. let me tell you about this Jesus that who I saved so, me. Yes, that's exactly it. Yeah. And it gets thrown back at you. AOC, the next time she talks about poverty and this and that, you know, this is the picture people are going to be tweeting. Oh, around. big time. I'm that's, so, I know we're out of time, but I'm just shocked that her PR people didn't say, don't do this. Bad idea. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, coming up next, we're excited to talk to Jason Casper. He is the Middle East correspondent with Christianity Today. He's a fascinating guy that we're looking forward to talking to next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. 
Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on this beautiful Tuesday afternoon. And, Aubrey, we're thrilled to be joined by the Middle East correspondent for Christianity Today. Uh, his name is Jason Casper. Jason, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Brian. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, we are so thrilled to have you on. I know you're calling from Lebanon. We've never had anybody other than yourself call from the Middle East, so it's really a thrill. But uh, before we jump into exactly some of the articles you've written and what it is that you do, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure, yeah. I have lived here in Lebanon with my family of four for the last two years. Had the privilege of talking to you about a year ago when yeah, uh, the Beirut port blew up. Mm. So uh, I wrote an article at that time about uh, several articles, of course, about the event. But one of them, which took your guys' attention, was how to explain this tragedy to my children. Mm. So that was, uh, you know, it was really fun to be able to do that in the midst of such a tragedy. But yeah, we live here with our family, uh, two years here in Lebanon. Uh, I've been working with Christianity Today since 2011 when I began with them in Cairo, Egypt. So basically, my life is to tell the story of uh, Middle East events from not necessarily a Christian perspective, but to help convey local voices, mostly Christian, so that we understand what's going on in the news from their perspective and not Mm. just that of our own media. Mm, I love that, Jason. And Jason, before we dive into some of your specific articles, can you give our listeners a sense of what led you to do this? Why are you passionate about the Middle East? Why did you decide to sort of take on this role in this particular calling? A lot of it has evolved as God has, you know, shifted me throughout life. But one of the things that he has helped me discover through journalism is a way to come and connect cultures, people who often don't understand each other. And if I go back to, you know, a very early sense of what I wish to do in the Middle East, it was to fulfill the Christian ability to love your enemies. Mm. Now, you take that enemies with a grain of salt, and mm-hmm. there's a whole lot more salt the longer you live over here. Because most of the time you find that the Muslims, the Christians, all of these odd peoples uh, here in the Middle East are perfectly normal individuals who you can share a life with. But from the very beginning, when you don't know that, the sense of being able to tell their story correctly is a great way to love people. We get inside of their shoes, try to understand their perspectives. They may not be right, but to convey faithfully the way people see it, as long as they're not trying to pull the wool over your eyes, Mm. is a very Christian thing to do. Um, We build understanding in the world by knowing Even those who disagree with us on certain policy or theological issues, the better we get to know them as people and to get inside their shoes and understand what they want us to know about themselves. Yeah, uh, it's such a good word for us. Jason, now, uh, over here in the States, when we think of the Middle East, right, we uh, we often think of it, probably rightfully so at times, at least as just a religious hotbed with just a ton of tension. I wonder, uh, how is your experience? What was it like when you started? And now that you've been there for a while, what's your experience now in the Middle East with people of other religions, with all the stuff that we read about? What's your experience for you and your family? Yeah, it's really hard to say. I mean, just to start off from a situation where I really don't know much at all. Um, you know, I've read about Afghanistan. I've written an article about it. But you know, I don't know what the Taliban's like because I don't live there with them. Now, it may be that if they saw me, they would kill me. But from the experience that I've picked up here in Lebanon, and okay, let's go back a little bit because even in Lebanon, the situation in the last several years when I've been here has been nice, calm, stable. Everyone gets along with each other. That was very different during Lebanon Civil War, where mm-hmm. you had to stay in your neighborhood. And if you crossed a line, they would shoot you. Mm-hmm. Um So, again, I didn't have that experience, but from what I can tell now, the Muslims, the Sunnis, the Shiites here in Lebanon, they're lovely people. Hmm. But taking a step backwards and where I could probably get a little bit closer to answering your question was the experience that I had reporting in Egypt during the days of the Arab Spring. Hmm. Um, That's when the Muslim Brotherhood was in ascendancy. Uh, It's also when, you know, the long bearded Muslims who are that best image of a terrorist uh, they're called Salafi Muslims, were also rising politically during those days. And I got to sit down with both of those groups and, and hear their point of view and, and try to sort out, well, where do we have common ground? Where do we not? And how do we misunderstand each other? So mm-hmm. from that point of view, I would say that, yeah, I mean, there were, you know, take those Salafi Muslims, for example. Uh, they had a very 
specific agenda to help restore a caliphate in the world. They wanted Islamic rule through and through, perhaps even in its, you know, medieval interpretations. Updated, of course, but something that the Christians of Egypt severely rejected. I don't think that I would want to live under it. But when I sat down with these people and even visited in their homes sometimes, they were cordial. They would serve me tea. They would be respectful and enjoy a conversation with each other. Now, again, if the situation shifted and a civil war broke out in Egypt, thank God it didn't, would these groups have been shooting each other? Would they have been a threat to me as an American? Maybe. You don't know what life does to people. But when you're here and you get the chance to form those relationships, I could certainly say that there is one of those sources who I spoke with who I would trust deeply Mm. and know that he is a good man at heart, even though we have different ways to view the world. Mm. I love your perspective, Jason. Thanks so much for for sharing with us. I do want to dive into one of your articles that you published called Crusaders No More, What Arab Christians and Muslims Think of Mascot Changes. Can you unpack that for us? Yeah, certainly. Uh, Within the last several weeks, maybe a couple months, there have been two high-profile Christian universities that announced they're going to drop their crusader name, you know, the mascots that they would use for their sports teams. So Valparaiso in Indiana and Evangel University in Missouri both said that this name is no longer appropriate for our universities. Uh, One of them has announced a new change. Valparaiso is going to call itself the Beacons, Evangel has not yet announced what their new name will be, but my article tried to understand where is this coming from and will it make a difference? Sometimes the rationale is presented, we can't use this crusader name because it's offensive to Muslims and around the world we need to be careful about our witness. Well, do Middle East Christians even care? Did they even know? Um, Or is this a U.S. domestic issue? Right or wrong, where is this coming from? Yeah. Uh, interestingly, Aubrey and I are both graduates of Wheaton College. They went through that exact same change uh, yes. probably a decade ago. And so how did you answer that? Because I remember when Wheaton changed their name, there was a lot of people going yay and a lot of people going, this is just political correctness. This doesn't matter. You know, there was a lot on both sides. Uh, so how do you answer that question? Does it actually matter? Do people care? Uh, the people who should be most offended by those names, do they actually care? One of the fun things about journalism is that it's rarely my job to give the answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the the three uh, Christian sources that I spoke with in the Middle East all said it's really irrelevant to our context. Mm. So, I mean, they had various reactions to the change. One was wholeheartedly endorsing it because he would say symbols matter. You know, if we are going to be cheering on this image that evokes a time of Christian militancy – Well, it doesn't matter how much I say I'm a peacemaker and I study the Sermon on the Mount. You know, what's getting fed to me day after day after day is this image of a knight with a sword. Mm. And he said, you know, we as Christians and the Muslims that we live around, we're all guilty of this. We take these images and we normalize them into our faith and we don't realize actually how much they divide us and can tilt us towards violence if we're not careful. Really interesting. You can find that article of Christianity today. We're thrilled Jason's going to stay with us. Back on July 22nd, you wrote an article that was at Christianity Today. People can find it at ChristianityToday.com about Christian and Muslim leaders agree on legitimacy of evangelism. This kind of uh, signing a statement together and and some real kind of work being done between Muslim leaders and Christian leaders. Can you remind us just the background of that story and why it's so important? Sure. Sure. Basically, what happened is if we go back a couple of years uh, in 2019, there is this group called Nahdlatullah. This is the largest Muslim organization in the world. Now, when you say that, it sounds huge and it is, but it's simply because Indonesia as a nation is so huge. So the largest nation in the world in terms of Muslim population is Indonesia. And this is their largest grouping of a Muslim organization with their scholars and such. Now, they have been trying to look at their faith and to avoid a lot of the, you know, fundamentalist extremist voices that sometimes come out of the Middle East and say, no, we need to protect our unique culture, Mm. our religious culture, but yet our open culture. And so one thing that they did back in 2019 is they met together with their scholars and they identified a word that actually the last source who I was speaking in their previous segment Mm -hmm. saying that Muslims and Christians both have to do work to review their heritage. 
There's this word called kafir. Probably a lot of the listeners are familiar with it. Kafir can be translated as infidel. It can be translated more friendly simply as an unbeliever. But within Muslim history, there is an association that the infidel must be killed. Hmm. Now, Muslim scholars and, and others who understand their faith will nuance this term and they'll, they'll bring out a, a wider understanding. But the fact that this word is so connected with that history, they have said in this Muslim organization that we must expunge it from our religious vocabulary. Hmm. We need instead of talking about the non-Muslim as a kafir, as an infidel, we need to speak about him as a fellow citizen. Hmm. So this change is something that was already underway going on in Indonesia with this particular group. That took the attention of the World Evangelical Alliance. And so some of the leaders of the alliance were going over to Indonesia, meeting with these people and trying to form a cooperation or understanding on how we can work for peace in our world. Hmm. The World Evangelical Association brings together, I believe, 800 million evangelicals around the world. And here they are trying to form good relations with Muslims everywhere. Where better place to start than with the world's largest Muslim organization as well? So that's the background to this statement. So, Jason, that you wrote that in 2019. Here we are, 2021. Have you seen um, any of the impact uh, from that statement? Any any changes relationally? Any residual changes because of that? It's hard to measure things in so short a period of time, but I think one statement that did come out of it is simply what this most recent article was about on the understanding that evangelism in both directions is legitimate. Hmm. So where this statement was signed came in Washington, D.C. this past summer. Um, you know, there has been, I guess, the past two or three, four years or so, a movement in D.C. to bring together leaders from around the world to promote international religious freedom. And so this group was there, the, you know, not the law, this Indonesian group, and the World Evangelical Alliance was there. So they met on the sidelines, actually in the oldest mosque run by African-Americans in the United States in Washington, D.C., and they had a ceremony where they signed an agreement of cooperation. And as they spoke with one another, they made very clear statements saying that, yes, we understand that the calling of both of our faiths is to invite others into it. Mm. And so, of course, Muslims have been inviting people into Islam for a long time. But most of the laws in many Muslim countries forbid anyone to officially change their faith from Islam to something else. And so there are secular Muslim-majority countries in which this is possible. Lebanon is one of them. If you're a Muslim here, you can go and register with the government that you are officially changing your religion to Christianity. But this is something that's very rare. It's not permitted in Egypt, for example. So what this group is saying, they are a non-governmental group, but from their civil society perspective, their religious perspective, there is nothing wrong with your efforts to convince me to leave my Islamic faith and join Christianity. Just as, of course, we here in America, with a heritage of religious freedom, would also say that though I might be very upset uh, with my, you know, most Christian family member leaving my faith to go join Islam, mm -hmm. it's legitimate. This is the way that God has made the world, that we have the freedom to believe or not believe. Well, Islam, says a group like this, has the exact same concept, and it has been overridden by other uh, regulations or, or strictures throughout history to actually make that an act of treason. Hmm. So, for example, if I were just to explain a little bit more briefly, the United States would accept the legitimacy of, you know, certainly prosecuting someone who is a traitor to our nation. And so many times throughout, uh, you know, history where there was a Muslim nation against a Christian nation, just think of the Crusades as we talked about earlier. Right. If you went and changed your faith, you were actually being a traitor to your nation. That's where a lot of this Kafir, the infidel must die language came from. But since the world has changed, groups like this, many Muslim scholars are saying that we have to update our understanding, but... It's very hard to change religious understandings. These things yeah. are with us forever. And to move and progress to an understanding that admits why something may have been legitimate in the time may not be legitimate today. But of course, in the way the world is open, evangelism, they say, is legitimate. Man, Jason, that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. Thank you for the kind of that firsthand thoughts from there. As we start to let you go here, let me just ask you one more question. Uh, help our people understand you're in Lebanon. What is the 
the the Christian church in Lebanon or in the Middle East like? Is it strong? How is it the how is it similar? But how is it different from the Church of America? Help us understand kind of the Middle Eastern Christian church. Sure. Uh, really, you can't describe it as a whole. You have to go country by country. I'll try to do so briefly. One of the things that has made the church strong over here, at least internally strong, if you look at Egypt, for example, Christians there have a great deal of societal freedom, but they feel very much pressed upon by their overwhelming Muslim majority. And so what that tends to do is that it internalizes them, focuses on their identity as Christians, and then from there, they can, if they wish, develop their spiritual faith. And in Egypt, you know, not only the evangelicals, but the Coptic Orthodox, who are the majority of all Christians, have a very deep faith. Now, if you compare that with Lebanon, of course, I'm still learning here. It's only been two years that I've been examining the religious terrain here. But Christians, historically, had been a majority. And they're certainly on equal terms now with the other religious groups. And Lebanon has kept a culture of freedom, both religiously and politically, where the church, not the church necessarily, but Christians have political power here. And so not pressed upon in the same way by Muslims, they have a sense in which their identity as Christians is absolutely firm, but their own spiritual life would be hit or miss according to any individual. It may be important to them, it may not be. So I'd say if we do want to summarize the Middle East as a whole, to be a Christian is very much tied to your identity. It's part of who you are, and it won't change. As evangelical Americans, we often think that you know our children have to make a choice to follow in our faith. Uh, over here, there's no choice. You are a mm. Christian automatically. And whatever you believe about the rightness or wrongness of your theology, it doesn't change who you are as a Christian. So as a whole, that aspect of we're not Muslims brings the church a sense of vitality, but... It's the working of the Holy Spirit in anyone's life for many different reasons that's going to ground that faith into a true belief that unites us within the whole body of Christ worldwide. Oh, that's an interesting snapshot. Again, Jason Casper is a Middle East correspondent with Christianity Today. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at J&J Casper. Also, Jason, that's with a Y, J-A-Y-S-O-N, jasoncasper.com. And as always, find all of his stuff at Christianity Today. Jason, this is fascinating. We really appreciate you spending time with us. Mm -hmm. Thanks for doing so. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. You are listening to The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. We talk a lot about the pastors that we as pastors like to listen to. Who are, you've shared this before, but who are maybe one or two pastors or speakers that you enjoy listening to? You're, oh. you're like, I'm, you know what? I need, to, I need some inspiration. I need oh. to listen to somebody. Yeah, who do you listen hand, to? Hands down, Charlie Dates and my friend Christine Kane. I mean, that's mm-hmm. who I go to for, for just like good preaching method, but then also just really good content. Yeah, plus Christine Kane selling your book. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I gotta go to her. No, I, I listen. I've been listening to her for years. She's just a powerhouse. That's awesome. Now, what I've about o- you? Who are you? Yeah, I've always to? loved listening to Tim Keller for many reasons. We've talked about throughout this Francis Chan, uh, and then uh, a guy I want us to listen to. We've listened to before a short clip from Matt Chandler. Matt Chandler is down outside of Dallas, Texas, uh, and and one thing I just enjoy about Matt Chandler is. Uh, he just he has a very relatable way of talking, much like Christine Kane, yeah. much like Charlie Day, who yeah. you talk about. Uh, it, you're never feeling talked down to, and he says stuff that I feel like I've said from our my pulpit, but just really, really a lot better. <laughs> like, uh, and Aubrey, somebody like Matt Chandler or a Tim Keller or a Christine Kane. What's happened in the last couple of years is they've become known as woke pastors when like five years ago they were getting lambasted, lambasted, lambasted for being being too conservative. I know. Isn't that funny? It's so true. You just can't. This is why I feel like those pastors know like you cannot serve people. You just have to serve the Lord. That's right. That's right. It's funny how this happens. And so uh, Matt Chandler wasn't even speaking to his church the other day. He was speaking at an ordination and installation service. Uh, for another pastor in Texas, 
and he talks. So, so that's what happens at an ordination service or when someone's being installed as a pastor, as a lead pastor, uh, they'll bring somebody usually from the outside to give a sermon and to give a message right. and a encouragement to the church. Uh, and Matt Chandler spends a little bit of time here talking about what our calling is, what the church needs to be right now in the craziness. I want you to hear what he had to say. You have been afforded grace despite you, and therefore we're going to share grace with one another. Now, here's what's crazy. That sounds so simple. And yet, in 2021, it's actually an apologetic. Like the bar right now uh, of being salt and light, it's fairly low. Right? I mean, there was a day where like, you better get those presuppositional apologetics in. I was reading Keller and then mimicking him, right? Reading John Frame. and it, Like now it's like, hey, don't be, don't be angry all the time. You know what you, it's like, don't be a jerk. And it's like, okay, here we are. People are like, something's different about this guy. Right? It's just like, hey, don't, don't be a jerk. Actually, give people, specifically brothers and sisters in Christ, the benefit of the doubt. Like, like, you see, it's so crazy. Like, you teach second graders that. But the church, by the way, we've lost our mind. Like, we're devouring one another. No benefit of the doubt. Wanting to kind of isolate in a tribe. Vilifying other churches. And I'm saying, let's not do that. Let's not let storyline be that place where we give in to the outrage of our day, but rather just determined by the grace of God to love one another, serve one another, bless one another, give one another the benefit of the doubt, champion in one another, mourn with one another, the 59 one another's in the New Testament call us to be the kind of people that won't give in to that nonsense, but shine like a light in that darkness. So he talks about uh, that we don't give the benefit of the doubt now, we vilify other churches, that the greatest apologetic used to be being able to answer everybody's questions, and now, I just love that, <laughs> the greatest apologetic is just don't be a jerk. Don't Live be like a jerk, we, the bar is so low. Yeah, don't, don't, like the stuff we normally say to our second uh, grade kids or whatever he's saying, yeah. we need to hear now. Aubrey, I, I think one reason I resonate with him is because I, I tend to agree with him. And mm. what he says now is sadly, don't you think so true of our church uh, and of our culture? I am telling you, we have lost our minds in the last year and a half as a church. And I mean, I'm guessing, you know, I know I hear people say this, that you know, the events of COVID. And by that, I also mean the protests. I also mean the violence against minorities. I also mean the masks and anti-mask wars. I mean, the elections. So I mean, everything. When I say the events of COVID, I mean everything. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's, I know some of it has triggered what was already like lurking underneath the surface and just bringing it out. And so in one sense, that's good. Like this needs to come out and like a, almost a cleansing needs to happen. But then I also feel like, are we just this collective trauma we have all experienced globally? We don't know how to process our emotions. And so we're just taking it out on each other. Is that part yeah. of what's happening? It's like, why is the church so horrible to each other right now? Yeah, I just think the tension is so high yeah. everywhere. Yeah. At all, everywhere around us, the tension is so high. Uh, that, that there needs to be spots to release, like there needs to be release valves. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, people are doing that in unhealthy ways yeah. often by yeah. venting on social media, by lashing out to where maybe five years ago they would have just had a conversation with right. somebody. Now they're having an argument right. with someone. Uh, and, and I do think that's coming out. And, and what I appreciate about Matt Chandler says, Hey, we are still called to be salt and light, right? We are still yeah. called to be lights in the darkness. And in some ways, that's that's never been easier, right? It, it's never been easier because all we have to do to be different in this culture right now is to just not be a jerk, mm. is to show people grace mm. uh, and like like actually show people grace, not yeah. talk about grace, but to actually show people grace, to actually show kindness to our neighbors, yeah. uh, to actually show restraint on social media. And, and I do think... In some weird ways, his point that the bar is really low right now should encourage – it should discourage mm. us, but also encourage us because the opportunity is so much higher right now to make an impact. So in some ways, what he says is really discouraging, but in some ways yeah. it goes, man, I don't have all the answers. I'm not a good evangelist. I'm not this. But I could be kind. I mean, I, I guess that's nice. true, right? You can – anybody can do that. Everyone can do that. 
Yeah. And so, uh, Aubrey, with the rest of our time, understanding his message here about the bar being low and us to be salt and light, yeah. how legitimately, what are some strategies literally us as Christ followers can use right now if that bar is low and if people are feeling this tension and this angst right now around us? I mean, I, you know, I guess I go real practical real quick, but if you're on social media, be the person who is encouraging others, not the one yeah. who's tearing other people down. Even if you disagree with them, even if you're mad about it, you don't need to use your social media platform for that. Use your social media platform to build each other up. What's that verse from mm -hmm. First Thessalonians? Encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are already doing. Like This is part of what it means to be the church of God, church yeah. of, that follows yeah. Jesus Christ. And then... um then do it in your personal life as well. Like when you're with that neighbor or that friend or that, you know, church goer that you disagree with, like just don't let that be the death of your relationship or the death of the way you treat them mm -hmm. with dignity. And then I, this one is really, really kind of, we've talked about what grinds our gears on this show before. <laughs> this one is a kind of a serious one. I think you have to be really careful about vilifying churches because mm. there are churches right now that are some are standing up against racism and they're being vilified as woke churches. There are some that aren't standing up against masks and they're being vilified as like they don't follow the science. They don't care about their neighbors. And I just think anytime, anytime Christians start vilifying the church, that is the enemy really mm. getting a stronghold in our church. And that has to change. Like we can disagree without vilifying and tearing one another down and spreading Dude. rumors and falsities. Like that is the work of the enemy. And we have to be aware of it. Like I think sometimes we have, you know, I'm going to preach here for a minute, but I think sometimes we have so allowed Satan to erase himself from our theology that we're mm. not even aware when he's at work tearing down the church through Christians, that's not okay. So I mm. think we, you know, wake up to what the enemy is doing right now and begin to go for unity instead of disunity and division. Oh, that's a good word. It's like there's this new cottage industry out mm. there, like on Twitter, of people just tearing down other churches yeah. and tearing down yeah. other pastors or their you know mistakes that they've made or whatever they're doing that is um I think that's a good word. I think that's a good word. You did something in earlier there that is the fear of every pastor. You said to me, "What is that verse out of 1 Thessalonians?" Like, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Do you ever have that where people in your church will be like, you know that verse out of whatever? And you're like, I have no, no idea. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I'm so sorry. I know I should. I actually don't. I know. that's I you, no You'll find me often being like, and then, okay, I know it was Paul. Paul said, or uh, yes, you know, I know it was exactly. Luke. Luke said, but I can't remember exactly where. <laughs> Paul saying Paul said gives you a really big yeah, umbrella. Yeah, it does. That's that a big umbrella. <laughs> the New Testament says, the Bible says. Coming up next, we are going to talk about a church planter who is doing something so interesting to me, reaching deportees at the border. We'll talk about that when we come back. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. I'm Aubrey Sampson, joined by my co-host, Brian Fromm, and we're so glad to have you with us. Over at Christianity Today, I think this is a fascinating story, Brian. There is a church planter. His name is Rafael Avila, and he is ministering to and uh, planting a church for deportees on the border. Mm. So he was born in Mexico, but was spent most of his life li living legally in the United States as a permanent resident. He was a bilingual kid from Tennessee, um, but he was at risk of deportation. And part of that was his own. He was addicted to drugs. His run-ins with the law were frequent. Like he was not living as maybe a good, healthy American citizen. Um, so his drug use eventually steered him back to Mexico. And in part of his story, he ended up um, being headed to deportation. He spent some time in jail. I mean, lots and lots and lots of pain. And what he began to realize was that there were lots of people in his similar situation, um, who just feel lonely. And one of the mm. things the article says is that a common feeling among deportees forced by circumstance and consequence into communities that are not their own is this feeling of loneliness. His wife only spoke um, English. All of a sudden, they're in Mexico with their kids. So there's a sense of loneliness. And he and his family knew they needed to find Christian fellowship 
to help bear the burden of now living in Mexico. And anyway, all that to say, he is part of a growing number of churches and outreach efforts um, that are kind of popping up along the border specifically to minister to those who have lived a lot of their lives in the U.S., but now for various reasons are no longer able to live in the U.S. They've been kicked out. They've been asked to leave. They've broken the law, what have you. Mm-hmm. And what I think is so interesting about this story, Brian, and then I'll let you talk, is that I think we spend a lot of time, especially as Christians, arguing about mm-hmm. issues around immigration, issues around deportation. But here's a guy who just in the middle of it decides, instead of doing that, I'm going to plant a church. Instead of doing that, I'm going to minister to other people. Instead of doing that, I'm going to reach people that are hurting for Jesus. And I, it just it was inspiring to me because I wonder if we could somehow put aside our politics for a time and remember that there are real people Mm -hmm. behind these issues that we often debate. What do you think about this? I think you're getting right at it there because there's great debates to happen around immigration. You and I have discussed it and we've also Mm -hmm. said things like, I'm not sure that uh, I understand what's going on, but that what you believe about policy around immigration uh, is not even part of this conversation. The question is, what are we as the church called to do? We're called to love people, particularly the the least of these. Uh, many of these immigrants uh, societally for us, not in value, but societally are the least of these, right? And so this guy is saying, hey, I'm not trying to fix uh, what's going on at the border. I'm not trying to fix the immigration debate. Yeah. I'm not trying to answer these policy questions. I just know that I'm called to love these people who are hurting, who are coming across the border wouldn't it be great to see them get to know Jesus? And wouldn't mm. it be great? And so I think there's a there. That's one of the lessons we learned from this. That like you don't just go for the people that are like you and or that you agree with or that policy. You know, there, there's more to it than that. But also his story drove his mission, right? Yeah. Like his own personal story mm. and the story of his family ended up giving him that passion to go reach these specific people. And I, I would encourage people to allow your story, allow what you've experienced in your life, allow the ups and the downs, whatever it is that you've uh, experienced, that that, that is uh, often how God uses us then to go reach people. Like this guy said, this is my story. And I think I can reach people by planting churches just over the border to kind of help because I could have used that when, yes. you know, when I was younger or whatever. I think this is a great also um, lesson about what drives our mission. You know, I think that's really good. And, and and actually, let's continue that thread of conversation just for the last minute, Brian, because I do think sometimes there's a lot of Christians out there wondering, like, what has God called me to do? And, um, you know, what you just said is so profound, but it's so true. And it's so simple. Oftentimes, it's our story. God will use that in a way that ministers to other people when we surrender it to the Lord. Okay, God, I've been through this really hard thing. Or, okay, God, this has been my life journey. Or, okay, God, this is the thing that I'm really passionate about. Then oftentimes that means you're the one who's supposed to do something about it, right? right? To minister to other people in that way. And what I like about this story about church planting at the border is that it's a group of folks that are doing it. So it's not on this one guy. I think sometimes we can feel like I'm the only one who can solve this problem. No, Get together with your community. Get together with your friends. See if other people are passionate about X, Y, Z. And then together you can reach people with the gospel. And Mm -hmm. um, I I think you don't have to look much further than your own life to see what your calling is. Because, uh, you know, God does nothing by accident. And so whatever part of your journey is, is what God wants to use you in ministry for. Yeah, I think just look at what the passions God has put in your heart. Yeah. Right? Like what, what are your passions? And then you can follow those. And, and I think that that is kind of your sweet spot for ministry, if you will. Yeah, that's good. You can read that article at Christianity Today. It's called Where the Great Commission Meets Deportation. Really inspiring, interesting story. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk about a tweet from Beth Moore herself, the mama of the Bible teaching herself when we return. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And as always, we're so grateful that you're with us here today. All right, Brian, you and I have talked about before how you're a little bit of a people pleaser, right? 
That is a true statement. Have you always been a people pleaser? I think so. You know, I, I've I, I look back and across my life, and, and I do think that I have often looked to other people um, for validation, right? Mm. So it's not that I do things just like, well, they be happy, but just like I, I think what what my people pleasing has often been through my life, and including as a pastor, which is where it gets really complicated, is. Am I getting affirmed by the people around me? And if mm. I am, then yes, good job. If I'm not, it's not enough for me to go internally. Like I'm doing a good job, even if they don't see it. Like mm. I, I need, I, I feel like I, I kind of, uh, the gas for me is, is other people's affirmation. Mm. And that could be, that could be really intoxicating at times. And yeah. that can make, that can set you up for a lot of pain at times for sure. Um, but I do think as a whole, uh, the more that you kind of thrive off of other people's opinions of you, I think the harder it can be as a pastor. Yeah, I, I definitely think when you're when your opinion of yourself or your own like givenness is based on someone else's scale, yeah, <laughs> that yeah. can become really problematic. But I also think you're right that as pastors, especially, you're there to serve people, right? And so you want to make sure you're actually meeting their needs. You can't do it perfectly, but yeah. So I, I do think that's interesting. I could see how that's there's good and bad to that. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Brian, here's why I bring this up. Beth Moore tweeted something. As we all know, Beth Moore is, I mean, probably the most successful Bible teacher in the world and mm-hmm. defining success both by like lives transformed, women empowered, and also just she has spoken everywhere and probably sold the most Bible studies of all time. Okay. So- yes. But we also know that Beth Moore has been the brunt of a lot of hate, even from her own uh, people over the yes. past couple of years. I mean, it's been really painful to watch. Yes. And um, she continually says, I'm here to serve Jesus. I'm here to serve Jesus. I'm here to serve mm-hmm. Jesus. But she put something on Twitter that I thought was so interesting in light of what we were talking about and in light of what she's been through. She said this. This was just a couple of days ago. You cannot make people like you. You cannot make people believe you. You cannot change their minds if they want to think the worst of you. You cannot demand esteem. Put that wasted effort into following Jesus and in his name, in his love, and in his ways, do your fellow humans good. Mm. Yeah, That's great. Wasn't that amazing? Okay, so let's break that down here. Okay, you cannot make people like you. You cannot make people believe you. What do you think about that? I think it's true. Now, I would say the flip side is you can make people dislike you. (laughs) (laughs) That is true. I don't think that's also the goal. But, you know, and I think Beth Moore speaks from a place of uh, great history here. Like there's Mm -hmm. not many people who get kind of praised and ripped on, say, Twitter more than Beth Moore. Right? If she chased people's adoration, that would be a full time job for her. Absolutely. People have I've often I've had to also learn as a pastor that not everything about my church is about me. Mm. And so people come and go, they are happy or mad, they are this and that, not sometimes because of me, sometimes because of decisions I've made or things I've said or uh whatever else it might be, but also because of uh, any number of things. And so um, you know, yeah, you can't make people like you because sometimes you're just you, you're going to be oil and water with some people. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And there's nothing you can I mean, you you almost you can't take responsibility for that. You can take responsibility for how you treat people, obviously, with honor and with dignity. But if you just I mean, some people just aren't going to like you and you can't do a thing about it. And that's mm-hmm. hard for people pleasers to wrestle with. But that is real. OK, and then she says this. And this is where with the last minute or so, I, I want you to get really pastoral and practical for our listeners, Brian. She says, put that wasted effort in following Jesus in his name and his love and his ways. Do your fellow humans good. So how do you when you're struggling with people pleasing. I'm just going to keep putting you on the spot here. Yeah, please. How do you do that? Like, are, do you just, uh, yeah. How do you practice? Okay. I'm not going to do that anymore. Instead, I'm going to focus on following Jesus and in his name, just keep on loving people. Like how does that actually play out in your own life and your, your day-to-day life? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm not sure always well, but, um, but my family plays a big role in this and I don't know that they know, like, I know my family likes me. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. And they're not, they don't necessarily like me. Or they, I know they don't like me based on the decisions I've made at church mm. or the radio show that I did. And so for me to be able to put work stuff away and to be able to focus on my family 
and uh, also on prayer and and reading the word and being you know with Jesus like to be able to focus on those things is a good sign that I'm doing okay I've got the perspective correct uh it doesn't mean I've decided I don't care what people think about yeah, me it's right. just the more that I could just live in the people live with the uh, in light of of God's acceptance, but also the mm. acceptance of the people who, let's be honest, most matter in my life. Mm. Uh, it's also why it's important for me to have people around me who aren't a part of my church. Yeah, uh, because yeah. they are also like that as well. So that does it for me. I think uh, I would love to have Beth Moore a conversation with Beth Moore someday and be like, "How good are you at living this out?" Actually. Right. Because right. you take so much. And mm. she's been open on Twitter and other places about how hard it is at yeah, times. Yeah. I'd want to know how does she actually do this? Because it's I, I believe in every word she wrote there. Absolutely. Sometimes it's just hard to live these things out. Yep. Sometimes it is. It'd be interesting to have Beth more on the show. Beth, if you're listening, come on she's to the comic good. She's, she's my friend. friend. Yeah, right. She is my one time professor. And that was so amazing. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Be sure to come back tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.